the world loves a teacher. Many of us have been influenced, shaped, incredibly motivated by one of those special educators in our life. And so don't forget how much power you have in that role and, and how that can be applied to shaping youth and helping them with their mental health and mental capacities. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Elizabeth Tingle, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and EverActive Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today, we're joined by Andrew Baxter, who is the Alberta Mental Health Literacy Lead with Alberta Health Services, to talk about fostering positive mental well-being in the school context. Just a reminder that one of the reasons why we've done this podcast format is to give you the flexibility to maybe pursue your own well-being while you are listening. Maybe it's a great time for you to go biking or just go on a walk. Maybe you have a pet that you need to take care of. Whatever it is that would make this experience both educational and beneficial for you in some other way. I love talking with my guests about their own personal habits for their well-being. Andrew, could you start off by sharing some of the things that you found that promote your own wellness? For me, I've always been really involved in sports. It's really nice because now I've got young kids and I'm kind of reconnecting with sports and I still try and keep in touch with physical activity but not to the competitive level I've used to, I still run. It's just slowly now. (laughs) And then when I run, or actually when I'm doing a lot of other things, I listen to podcasts and I just find that really meditative and relaxing. So yeah. There you go. Do you find that it benefits both your physical and your emotional and mental well-being when you make time for that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I feel better, especially if I exercise in the morning. And I think there's some data to support this. People are more likely to comply with exercise if they do it in the morning. And it just kind of sets you up for that day, at least for me. I'm not a morning person. So when I do drag myself out and do it, I just feel better for the day. And tell us a little bit about your experience professionally and how it is that you've come to care so much about well-being in schools. I've spent most of my career in school-based mental health because, first of all, that's where kids are at. And school is such a great place to develop mental wellness because it's got a lot of grist for the mill, if you take my meaning. There's a lot of ways to develop content there. And the other thing we know about the development of mental illness is that if we want to get on it early and if we want to catch it in the window of onset, we have to be working with youth. It's absolutely critical to get in there in that elementary, junior high, high school age group, as well as post-secondary. So really, really important in that time span. How would you define mental health? I think sometimes there's some confusion over these words. Let's get clear on these terms. And that is such an important question because there is so much semantic confusion out there about what is mental health. And so often, In our society, when we say mental health, we mean mental illness and vice versa. One of the really critical things that I'll just start out with is it's essential not to define good mental health as the absence of negative mood states. So good mental health is actually comprised of feeling sad some days or feeling lazy or feeling discouraged, but it's also comprised of feeling content and happy and elated and 
and jovial, right? It's a whole range. And I think the real danger is when we feel if we if we're not happy all the time, we don't have good mental health. And that is absolutely not true. The way we look at it is as four separate states. You know, we've got no distress at the bottom, mental distress in, in the middle, and followed by mental problem. And then at the very top of our mental health literacy pyramid representing the smallest number of people is those with a mental illness. You actually just exist in these various states. So a good example of a, of a distress would be getting a flat tire or the wrong order at Tim Hortons or not having your lesson plan done before your students arrive or the two youth in your classroom that are just having their own conversation while you're trying to lecture. Those are everyday sort of slings and arrows of, of stress. And it turns out that those are okay. They actually help us learn. They help us become adaptive. We learn new skills through stress. Stress has had a really bad rap recently. We keep talking about de-stressing our lives, but in fact, we need to just learn from our stress. And then the next level up is when we get into a mental problem. And that's just when we're, we're outstripped by the environmental situation. So good examples here would be grief and loss or the end of a really important relationship or divorce in a family or things like that. And we know why somebody may feel sad or lonely or it may impact their concentration. It may impact them at work or even disrupt their sleep. It may actually even mimic some symptoms of mental illness, but it's not a mental illness. It's a big mental problem, but it's not a disorder. It's not, it's not something going on with the person's brain. The final category where there's mental illness, we have a perturbation of usual brain function. That's a big fancy word for meaning something isn't quite working out right in the brain. And that's where we need psychiatric intervention. And sometimes that's medication and sometimes it's talk therapy and things like that. The critical thing to remember is that you can be in any of those categories at the same time. And a lot of people with a mental illness actually have better mental health than somebody without one. So mental health is this construct that fits over top of all those different states. So it is kind of complicated, but it's really essential that we talk about disorders when we mean disorders and mental problems when we need mental problems. So we, we demonstrate that model a lot. We teach it a lot to a lot of different folks so that we end up getting a shared sense of literacy. So we're on the same page. Why is it important for a teacher to have mental health literacy? Why are they important figures in helping students with different kinds of mental illness that they may experience? Yeah. Number one, we know that the age of onset for mental disorders, about 70% of it falls between the age of 12 and 25. So it's right in that junior high, high school window into post-secondary. I tell people mental illness isn't something that happens to you later on in life, like a lot of other physical illnesses. It's something that gets our youth. So really, really critical that we be aware of it during that time span. We also know that the earlier you start to intervene on something, the better the outcome is, right? And that just makes sense when we think about it. The earlier we're able to start treatment on an anxiety disorder, the less developmental impacts it has on a youth as they age. So early identification is really important. The other thing that's a really nice secondary effect is that the teachers benefit from learning the lessons about mental health as well. You know, we all have mental health. And so knowing that it's a lifelong skill to develop. So we find that when professionals attend our seminars and our talks, they say, you know, this was helpful for my students, but it was also really important for my own life. We like to joke and call that mental health by stealth. That's what happens when, when people are learning alongside of the students. The other thing is that no matter what your disorder is, be it physical or mental, 
you do better if you know more about it. So if you have diabetes, you do better if you understand how diabetes works and you understand and you're involved in your treatment. And the same thing with a mental illness. We can do that really easily. We can teach youth about different disorders and they do better with their disorders as they age and grow up. And we can convey that through school lessons. It's really, it's actually really simple. Can you clarify what is the role of a teacher if they do think that one of their students is dealing with a mental illness? What's our responsibility? One of the things that we use, one of the approaches we use is something called the go-to educator. And what we're trying to do in that is just capitalize on those really important existing relationships between youth and educators. We know that the research tells us youth are not really good at help-seeking behaviors. They have a problem and they'll either stew about it or they won't tell anybody or they'll hide symptoms or they might convey it to a, a friend, but they don't know what to do. So what do they do? If they're fortunate enough, they have a trusted family member and that's where they generally report. But if that's missing or they don't feel comfortable, the next place that they tend to go is a trusted adult in school. Educators are very importantly positioned to be identifiers of youth with mental problems or mental disorders, and then knowing how to direct that youth is critical. So what we ask is that they become the go-to person for those youth. And that doesn't mean that they're diagnosing them. It doesn't mean that they're providing treatment. It means that they have a little bit more background in mental illness. They know the youth better than often just a lot of people do in, in that kid's life. You know, one of the things I say is that educators are the keepers of the contextual keys. You get to see them as an educator in all of these different contexts. You get to see them during the attentional demands of mathematics. You get to see them at free time, moving around at the locker break or at recess. You get to see them at pick up and drop off. You see them in a lot of different environments. Whereas a mental health therapist doesn't have those contexts that the educator does. So bringing that information forward when they need it as a an identifier role, that's so critical. I can't complete a good thorough mental health assessment without information from school. It's just not possible. Also, I found as a language arts teacher that sometimes things would come up in assignments that would open the door for a conversation where, you know, it sounds like something's going on. Do you want to talk about it? So I think there are different ways that students can share if maybe they're struggling with something. Yeah, I completely agree. It's an extra set of eyes. And really, this can be anybody in the school. I always tell the story of my mother. She used to work as a principal in a small elementary school. She didn't have an AP and she didn't have a VP. She had Shirley who sat at her front desk and Shirley was the front desk admin and she did everything. She handled the difficult parents. She collected the kids' teeth at school when they fell out. She bandaged the knees when they'd fallen on the playground. She was ideally placed as a go-to educator. She just was somebody that the kids naturally trusted. And that's different. That's a different person in each school for each kid. So the more people we can position for youth to come forward to, the better off we are. And you touched on this a little bit before, but at what age will a mental disorder often emerge or become more evident? Yeah, it's different for different disorders. We know some disorders may occur at birth, and we don't see them emerge until certain points in development, right? And then other disorders happen later on in the, in the lifespan. And each disorder has what's called a window of onset or when it most typically initiates. But like I said, when we gather all that together and we kind of average it out, we see that window of onset about 70% happen between 12 and 25. There's some disorders Many teachers are familiar with uh, separation disorder, which is when kids have a hard time coming to school, or things like selective mutism, which may show up 
early, early in their educational careers, and other disorders may emerge later on. We know psychosis disorders like schizophrenia don't typically happen until typically later adolescence and early 20s. So it just depends on the disorder and it just depends on when it is in the lifespan. But usually this happens as the brain is developing in those critical adolescent years or before. So what causes a mental disorder to emerge then during that window of onset? The really simple answer to that question is we don't know. (laughs) We just don't have a good enough understanding about the brain. I've heard this expression used by numerous neurologists and scientists, and if the journey of understanding the brain could be understood in a full mile, so far we've moved an inch. So we really haven't even scratched the surface. We know it is a complex interplay between genetic factors and environment factors. So the one thing we know for sure, it's it's never always nurture and it's never always nature. It's always a combination of both. And we've just started to uncover the complexities of that interaction. I think that historically, we heard a whole bunch of stigmatizing perspectives, like often it's the parents and even more specifically, it's the mothers that get blamed for the cause of a mental illness. And this is just completely wrong. It is far, far, far more complicated than that kind of an interaction. We also have something called epigenetics. And we used to sort of think that when the sperm met the egg, the genetic dice were cast. That was it. No changes. But what we're realizing now, epigenetics is something where the environment can impact the genes and and their expression. So really, what we need to just focus on is providing the best environment for our, our kids as possible. Just to give a really quick example We know that with, um, you can have a a monozygotic twin, that's twins from the same egg. So identical twins uh, that go to the same school and they have the same parents and they pretty much have the same social group and they take the same classes and they both do ballet together and one ends up with an anxiety disorder. That's epigenetics, right? We know that just even small changes in the environment can have big shifts on the expression of the gene. So it's really, really complicated. And we know that some Disorders can be caused by things like bacterial infections, low neural transmitters, concussions, all sorts of different reasons that uh, a mental disorder can, can come on. So given that we're not entirely clear on why a mental illness might develop, is it possible to prevent mental illness? The good news is, is that so far what we know about prevention of the disorders is that it turns out it's exactly the same thing as it is for physical illness. It's the same stuff. So the easy way to remember this is what's good for your bicep is good for your brain. And that's uh, that's Dr. Stan Kucher, who wrote most of our materials. Good eating, good exercise, good social connection, good rest, good sleep, helping others. Those are the sort of the big five that really work best for promotion of good health and prevention of mental illness. What are the most common mental illnesses in a student population that a teacher will see? Most common, sort of the common cold of mental illness is anxiety disorder, clinical anxiety disorder. Probably second to that would be something like ADHD. Third would probably follow in something like depression. So when we're talking about the prevalence of different disorders in young people, one of the little activities we like to do and present on is is asking who's in your classroom. And so what we did is we took the prevalence in the general population, and then we calculated what that would show up on, on average, in a classroom of about 30 kids. And we've randomly selected them from across Canada. So they're not all from Calgary or they're not all from Lethbridge and they're not all from Halifax. We've randomized them. 
And what we'd find is, is depression about four to six percent in the general population. And that would translate to about one or two youth in your classroom of 30 kids. Now, psychosis, that is actually very, very rare. That's around half a percentage to a percentage in the general population. So that would just mean it, it just wouldn't show up very often in your classroom. Even myself as a mental health therapist in schools, that was a very, very rare disorder that I worked with. Anxiety disorders, that's that common cold. It's about 6 to 10% in the general population. So that would mean about one to three youth in that classroom might have an anxiety disorder. But a total of about three to five youth in the classroom at any given time may have a disorder. That's what we see lifetime prevalence about 15 to 20% in the population. That just gives you a little bit of an idea of what's the most common with anxiety disorder being the common cold of mental illness. Now, it's really important to note, there may be some of the people listening that say, well, you know, I've seen a classroom with nine kids with ADHD. And sometimes that happens, right? Uh, We get a pileup of numbers, but this would be sort of an over average. But you think about the number of years that that a person would teach and the number of youth that they would see, this is going to add up very, very quickly. So just critical to have good understanding about all these different disorders. And what was the number of students typically for ADHD in the class? Oh, sorry, I, if I didn't say that, it's one to two. There's there's a lot of conversation about the prevalence of different disorders in the past 50 years as they've actually remained relatively stable. So right now, when you watch media, you'll hear that we're in an epidemic of anxiety disorder. And that's not what the epidemiological data tells us. What we have noticed is that there has been a huge increase in self-reports of disorders. And that's a really interesting phenomenon because it seems like a lot of us tend to pathologize what we've encountered as as mood. And we tend to think, oh, is this related to a disorder? And it's often just not true. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of individuals that, that suffer from mental illness, but there's also a lot of individuals who are reporting that they're suffering from mental disorder, but they're not understanding that normal mood fluctuations are part of everyday mental health. So that's a critical distinction that we have to make going forward. And the rates of ADHD, those have remained relatively stable as well? ADHD has been one of the tricky ones because we went through a period of overdiagnosis for quite a while. The good news is that ADHD is a disorder where, first of all, it is highly treatable. The rate uh, was probably too low and uh, underdiagnosed for a while. And then we swung the pendulum to the other way and overdiagnosed. And I'm hoping we've got it back to a good spot now. But really essential with ADHD is that we engage in good psychoeducational testing and that we get some good data on how the youth's brain works because that'll give us a lot of insight. So the diagnosis may take some time to get it right and make sure we're looking at all the factors. And it's essential that teachers participate as much as possible in that process, as well as the youth themselves, to get that diagnosis and treatment right. That is so different from what's reported in the media. It's interesting how research can be kind of distorted. Yeah. One of the things that I've learned is that there's a big difference between epidemiological data, where we study sort of disease prevalence, and survey and self-reports. Those are totally different I just caution anybody, where did the data come from? And if it's self-reports, we really have to ask. I, I find those are really good for climate measures. They're good at sort of taking a temperature check. How are people feeling? But when we get trained professionals, trained mental health therapists to do proper assessments with normed and validated instruments, we find very different results in the population. What we find is the survey results tend to 
overestimate mm-hmm. that prevalence. Let's go into a little more detail about these ones that are the most common that we'll typically see as teachers. So how can a teacher recognize that a student might be dealing with depression and what should they do to support a student like that? I'm going to take it one step back and say that they don't even need to recognize that they're in a depression. I would want them to, you know, my uh, forgive the sports analogy. <laughs> if this is a football play, I just need the teacher to throw up a flag. Yeah. <laughs> throw up a flag, stop the play. We can sort it out later about what the infraction is, right? You know, let's say you've got James who's sitting there in your classroom and James is not concentrating and seems to be drifting and his marks are falling. There's some really important questions to ask. That could be ADHD, it could be a learning disability, it could be an anxiety disorder, or it could be depression. It could be any one of those things. But that's not really the teacher's role to figure that out. I just need for them to advocate for that student to get to somebody who can help figure that out with them. And the teacher's going to supply a whole bunch of really important information like, well, when did this start? I need to know how much school did he miss? He missed more in the last month than he has in his entire school career. That, that makes a big difference. I need to know when the academics changed. I need to know if this is showing up just in that class or is it happening in drama and music and volleyball practice as well? Because those are all important aspects. Again, it's all that information that the educator can supply for the assessment. That youth had a baseline function before something happened. When when was that? What did that look like? And the teacher often has that information. So what I can go on to say is that if you do have James who's sitting there with depression, and let's say they are successfully identified and we start a, a treatment process, that's not the end of the work for the educator. It's not like, well, we've made a referral, we're done, because we know that that youth comes back to your classroom. So then the question becomes, well, what can we do to best support? that youth. Well, we know depression, for example, doesn't actually just impact your mood. It depresses your cognition as well. So we may need to make academic modifications for that youth. But we can also support other good things like exercise, good healthy eating, good social connection. And teachers can play a really big role in doing that. And nobody needs a prescription pad for that kind of stuff. Those are universal interventions that teachers can use with that student, but also all the other students because they work with any youth. Like I said, those big five before, they'll help the youth that's struggling with the disorder, but they'll also help the kid who's doing just fine, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sort of upstream approach rather than just, can I talk to you after class? You know, how are you sleeping? That's not going to be as effective or, you know, m- might as well help everyone in the room instead of just one. By making them general lessons, it doesn't single out anybody and we don't get into the stigma problem as much. Yeah. Exactly. And what about anxiety? When does regular stress start to become a mental illness? And how can teachers help students who struggle with anxiety? Yeah, sure. The first thing I like to do is just not use the word anxiety. The reason I don't like to use it is because the word anxiety and the word clinical anxiety, which are two very different things, they often get confused and we're back to our semantic confusion. So anxiety is a part of that stress level of the pyramid, right? That's a normal part of everyday experience. Clinical anxiety is up in that top portion of around the disorder. So the question often becomes, when do stress and anxiety, or what I like to call worry or concern or being distraught or whatever it may be, when does that end up into the clinical sort of category? Again, this is something that needs to be sorted out by a clinician, but we're looking for a few key elements. We're looking for when the youth starts to become anxious about something and then they avoid or withdraw really consistently, and that causes functional impairment. 
in their life. So having worry about a spelling test is one thing, but being so worried that you can't sleep the night before and then you're a total wreck in the morning and then you refuse to go to school and you end up missing that day and plus three days after. And the next time you have a spelling test, you do the same thing we start to see that functional impairment, right? So it's really a matter of degree on that. We all have various feelings that relate to different disorders. That doesn't mean we have the disorder. So it's it's more a question of magnitude. I like that idea of teachers normalizing worry. Learning is supposed to test us. It's supposed to be challenging. That's what's going to make it effective. But do you advise that teachers sort of walk through strategies to deal with that worry in the moment or the day before the test? Do you think those are effective? Yeah, absolutely. They're effective. And actually, again, if your listeners want to go check out our video on stress, it's on our YouTube channel there next to the the mental health literacy pyramid video. There's really three points of intervention in this. There's that point just before the test, and that's where we can engage in some deep breathing or a mindfulness activity or box breathing or any kind of yoga or whatever it is we want to do. And those are all to help dampen our stress response curve. That's basically what they're there for. And they're really good at that. And it depends, you know, sometimes you have to find the right strategy for the right kids. Some kids will color and that they find that relaxing and others need a guided visualization and others need the breathing. And for some kids, none of those three don't work at all. So you got to be creative. So finding that is really helpful. But there's two other steps before that that are absolutely critical. And one is identifying what's the problem. (laughs) And that's something, you know, the fancy word for this is cognitive attribution. What's making me worried in the first place? So let's say you've got two students taking a test and they're both really having a difficult time with it. And one student says, I don't want to write because I'm concerned I'm going to fail and my parents are going to be livid and I'll be in trouble. And the second one says, I don't want to write it because I don't like writing with a whole bunch of other youth in the room. And that makes me feel really uncomfortable. Well, those are two very different reasons, and they require two very different interventions. So once we figured out the cognitive attribution, then we can start to take steps to make it better. That's uh, the step two, which is problem solving. So with the youth that doesn't want to write with other people, a really good intervention would be something like, well, we know that there's going to be a lot of tests in your future with a lot of other people. So we really need to practice this right away. And so we're going to break your tests up into three parts. And in the first part, I'll let you pick the friend that you want to write it with. In the second part, I'm going to add a few more people to the room. In the third part, you'll write back in the classroom with everybody else. And that's a really good intervention because it's stepped, it's scaffolding them back in. It's kind of systematic desensitization to what it is that they're worried about. And it doesn't allow the avoidance and the withdrawal. Because if we allow them to write it by themselves, we're actually escalating that anxiety response, that stress response for the next time they have to write. So critical that we don't allow avoidance and withdrawal, that we work with the student to come up with problem solving, and then we allow them to deep breathe. So the deep breathing and the little activities that we can do are kind of the final step. And often if we do the first step, which is cognitive attribution, and the second step, which is problem solving, we don't even need the third if we've done the first two really effectively. So it can really help youth get into the right mindset to approach it. And and the key lesson is to know that if they avoid it or withdraw from it, it's actually going to make it worse in the long run. That's good advice. It reminds me of Dr. Ross Green's collaborative problem solving approach that, you know, as an adult, we often make assumptions for why 
someone is doing a certain thing. But if you just ask and really figure out like, what is at the root of this that completely affects how you deal with it? And sometimes we just jump to the solution. Absolutely. He's certainly been one of the people that I consider a mentor for sure. Ross Green's got a really good idea. So in that problem solving step, if you put collaborative problem solving in there and get the youth to generate those solutions, they're going to be more bought in, more invested, and you're more likely to succeed with them. Mm -hmm. And those slow breathing or meditative activities benefit the teacher too. (laughs) I always like how I feel after we do a little meditation as a class. Yeah. And, you know, making it a daily part of the classroom routine is just, it's just a good practice to get into. Yeah. Let's talk also a little bit about ADHD. So is it classified as a learning disability or a mental illness? And what do you wish teachers knew about this condition? ADHD is moved around in what we call the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. We're currently on its fifth revision. And it's supposed to be uh, the reflection of our best science and our our understanding of the various disorders. ADHD has been changed. It is not a behavioral disorder. It's actually called a neurodevelopmental disorder. And really, really critical, the one thing that I wish everybody knew about it is that it is not related to oppositionality. In no way is that a criteria of the disorder. But often what we see is, or we hear about kids that are being oppositional because of ADHD. And really what's happening there is, is a big gap between the way the youth thinks and their environment. Our goal needs to be, how do we bridge that gap and how do we help them through that? So really critical to focus not on so much the behavior, but on what are those problem-solving steps that we can make to get them in a better situation in the classroom. What is the teacher's role in supporting a student with ADHD? And what do you think are the strategies that make the most difference? First off, to support the youth in in getting the help that they need. So if we have undiagnosed, untreated ADHD, it may be to, again, raise the alarm with parents, family, with the youth themselves and say, have you seen this? Has anybody noticed this? Advocate for that psychoeducational testing, which I know we're in dire shortage of, but to advocate that the youth gets the help that they need. Now, once diagnosed and, and whether they're, hopefully if they're treated, the next I'm going to steal something from Ross Green again because we brought him up already. I think the best way to approach it is to be the youth's surrogate frontal lobe. (laughs) And what we're talking about is the frontal lobe of the brain. So we know that ADHD, the suspicion is, is that it's a delay in the development of the prefrontal cortex. What we need to do is make sure that we're supporting the youth from a strengths-based perspective in accomplishing the tasks that that part of the brain is just not yet ready to accomplish. And eventually, once they get a little bit older, once we start to get a little bit better control on the symptoms, they'll be able to gradually take over more and more of those tasks. But we don't want to set them up for failure. We don't want to say, okay, I want you to take your permission slip home in your backpack for tomorrow, have it signed by both parents, return it to Mrs. Brown's class in period three, and submit it before you get your payment in for the field trip. That's just not going to (laughs) happen. There's too many steps. And the youth is going to be frustrated. The parents are going to be frustrated. So we need to develop a workaround for that youth about how do we support them in that. There's modifications we can do in the classroom. And I think about the worst learning environment I can think of is this sort of an open concept classroom with lots going on in it for a youth with ADHD. It's just going to be far too distracting. So we can set up appropriate workspace. That does not include giving them fidget spinners or bouncy balls. Youth with ADHD don't have extra energy. 
the reason that you see them shifting on their chair and wiggling and squirming is they're paying attention to every single environmental input, you know, that the chair is making on their butt and the other kid that's smiling across them across the room, they're orientating to all of those different environmental stimuli. And so what we need to do is help them close off some of those environmental stimuli. That's why we give a stimulant medication is it ramps up the part of the brain that helps them block out some of the environmental distractions and pay attention to the lesson. Hmm. What do you think are some of the better strategies for teachers who want to improve their students' mental well-being. Have you heard of teachers that have been effective in this way? Yeah, teachers that have consistent classroom routines, that have expectations, that give good time to transition. But I, I think more than anything, it's having a really good relationship with your students. It's knowing those students as well as you possibly can. It's having that care and concern for each one of them to learn their learning styles, to understand where they're at, that's how they're going to be the best help to those youth if there is a concern. The other thing I'll mention is that the teachers that I see get in front of the the issues early do far better. So I always suggest have a call home or have a good point of contact for parents early on. We had a, a couple of years ago, we got a phone call from my daughter's music teacher who just wanted to say that she thought that my daughter was very pleasant in class and was uh, giving it her all in music. And I realized that I was would be far more willing to listen to that teacher had problems arose later on. Because we had a good point of contact, the teacher had proven to me that she knew my daughter quite well and was very invested in her academic success in music, but also her well-being. That just went a long way as a parent on the flip side of the equation to create a good working relationship if there was a problem to arise. So I think teachers that can be proactive that way are in good stead if there is a problem. That's such good advice to try as a teacher to start things off with parents on the right foot with that strength-based lens because I'm speaking from personal experience. My oldest has ADHD and I still remember how nervous I was to send him to school knowing that he would likely cause issues. And we've since got him on medication and he's thriving and doing great and tells people openly that he takes medication and it's really helped him. But I still remember that kindergarten teacher at our first meeting, you know, when there had already been (laughs) incidents in class and kindergarten was hard for him. And she said, we're going to figure this out, but he has a heart of gold. I can just tell that he wants to do the right thing. And she had me. I was on her team from that moment on because I could tell that she was rooting for him and that he wasn't just in her eyes like an obstacle to her classroom management and that we were going to work on this together. So I think that's so key to really try and build those bridges with parents from the very beginning. I couldn't agree more. That relationship is everything, and it's so critical to get that alignment. And again, the research shows, too, that kids with mental disorders have better outcomes if parents are involved in the treatment process. So I would strongly recommend take the time to invest in that parental relationship. It's it's so critical, and you're not going to get very far if you don't. So put the time in. Remember that a lot of parents come to the table and they don't have a teacher's sample size. So for them, that just may be Wednesday night. (laughs) The teacher can see that their youth, when compared against the other 25 kids in the classroom, cuts against the grain. The parent generally just doesn't have that lens on their son or daughter. So really important to help 
you know, set that frame for them and, and also be understanding when they show up. Remember too, a lot of parents have had negative experiences with school. They may have had the same challenges for themselves. So be really sensitive to that. And I've seen schools, in fact, with the best intentions, having the wrong optics as they go in. One time I remember working with a, a single mom who had a, a young boy and there was concerns. And so the teacher called a meeting with the school and with the best of intentions, again, brought the whole administrative team, which wanted to be involved, and the school psychologist and a behavioral consultant and, and the lunchroom supervisor mm. <laughs> and the one mom. And, and the room looked a little bit like a Senate hearing. And here is this poor parent, yeah, facing a big board of all these professionals. And we forget that schools are institutions and sometimes can appear kind of scary. So just be sensitive to those optics and find out how to meet with parents and the best way to meet and raise these concerns. Always bring the strengths-based perspective, raise those positives along with the issues that you want to address and go slow. Mm -hmm. it, it is not going to all be figured out in one meeting or one year at school. Absolutely. How can teachers reduce stigma associated with mental illness? Yeah. So we know that stigma is probably the biggest barrier to treatment. We still have an extensive amount of stigma around mental illness and mental disorders. And people are afraid that you'll be viewed as having a character flaw or it's a moral failing or my child will be labeled. I, I can't tell you how many people turned down services from myself as a mental health therapist because they, they just couldn't get past the stigma barrier. The way I think that the teachers can play a role in reduction of stigma is pretty simple, and that's by teaching about mental health in the classroom. We have a lesson plan. Uh, with, we call it the curriculum guide for it really runs in grade 8, 9, and 10 and up, really. And we're currently developing lessons for elementary students. And what we found, and we've measured this, is that we see a change in attitudes around a stigma. We see a reduction in stigma when we provide lessons about what's positive mental health, how do you obtain and maintain good mental health, and what happens, what are the disorders, and what are their signs and symptoms, and how do you recognize it in yourself or somebody that you care about, and how do you get help? How do you have an informed conversation with a, a care provider when you get to that help? And by doing that, we show a reduction in stigma. That reduces barriers to getting onto a pathway to care. Teachers can play a big role in this by doing what they do best, which is just teach. We found in our research that when we do one-offs, if you know, we constantly get asked, well, just come in and talk to the, the students about uh, depression or come in and talk to them about anxiety. What we find is the next day, there's a big lineup outside the counselor's office for kids that are worried that they've got depression or anxiety disorder. So what we've learned is that we have to put this in to school in a way that's kind of just fits with the other lessons. So you learn about social studies and then you go to language arts and then you end up in a discussion about mental health. And that happens as part of the everyday curriculum. And that way it doesn't sensationalize it. It doesn't make it stand out. It's just something that we learn about. Like I said before, it's a lifelong skill. I can't guarantee how many kids are going to go on to factor a polynomial or do conics, but I do know that they will all have a brain and they will all have mental health for the rest of their life. So to me, it's it's a it's universally important. I can live in all the subjects. I was thinking about different discussions that have come up because of a short story or a play. It's part of life. And so the more we can openly talk about it and model accurate terms and those kinds of things, the better everyone is. Very true. What do you wish teachers really understood about mental health? What do you want to make sure that they are clear on? 
I want them to know how much of an impact that they can have on on shaping youth in in terms of their having positive mental health. Teachers play such an important role in that. We often do a little poll in our classroom and it always comes out the same, which is that the world loves a teacher. We, we've Many of us have been influenced, shaped, incredibly motivated by one of those special educators in our life. And so don't forget how much power you have in that role and, and how that can be applied to shaping youth and helping them with their mental health and mental capacities. And what could a teacher start doing tomorrow to help their students improve their mental well-being? Well, I'm going to flip this around a little bit, and I'm going to suggest that to ensure that you're really looking after those needs in your students is to make sure you're you're looking after yourself, to ensure that your own mental health needs are being met. You just can't extend this kind of empathy and compassion and care and really good teaching if you're not centered yourself, if you're struggling, if you're underslept, if you're fatigued, if you're not exercised, you're not eating right, and you've got a lot going on for yourself, it just makes it so difficult to extend that to others. So my suggestion is that you work to regulate yourself, and that'll help you co-regulate your classroom. So really look at your own well-being and make sure that that's running as smoothly as possible. Such good advice and really resonates with the comprehensive school health framework where student and teacher and staff well-being are all interdependent and influence each other. And so they all have to be a priority. That's very true. Do you have any resources that you would recommend? We'll put links to those videos that you mentioned, but anything else that someone could go to for some good advice on mental well-being in schools? Sure. I mean, I'll recommend our, our website, teenmentalhealth.org. Uh, there's a lot of stuff there for teachers, for uh, physicians and therapists, but also for parents and youth. I think Anxiety Canada has a really good series of resources that can be accessed. They're evidence-based. And I think that's going to be my one pitch, is that whatever resources that you look at, just ensure they have some good scientific evidence behind them. They're well-endorsed because there is a lot of misinformation out there on mental health. Thank you, Andrew Baxter, for coming to talk with us and to share your wisdom on this important topic. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Elizabeth. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us for another Conversation on School Health, a serious collaboration between the Workland School of Education and EverActive Schools. Thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music, and a special thank you to Stephen Hurley from Voice Ed Radio for production assistance and sound editing. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at EverActive Schools, or visit our website everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until next time, the podcast is dismissed.